Uh, today, we are continuing our Voices of Justice series where uh, every once in a while in the life of our church, we bring in people to share uh, perspective that uh, just diverse perspectives related to justice. So we've been in a, uh, this is something we've done monthly, November, December, and now January, where we've brought in different individuals like uh, Teresa from Chris, if you remember that conversation. Um, today, we have uh, Timothy uh, to talk about racial justice and coffee and a variety of other things. So uh, if you want to welcome him, we're going to have a good conversation today. So. Grab that mic. And I get to sit. This is great. I should do these more often. Um, today, uh, some of you might not know Timothy but you might know his coffee. For a while there, we were uh, having his coffee brewed and delivered um, uh, earlier this year. So when we first brought coffee back, it was mosaic coffee. Today, if you wanna, uh, we brewed some mosaic coffee. It's a medium roast. So while supplies last, you can try that out um, and uh, you, can, you can check that out. But um, it's great. Great coffee, by the way. Today we're gonna to talk about mosaic coffee, but really also we're gonna talk about the intersection of uh, Timothy's work between the church and uh, anti-racism, diversity, that sort of thing. So to start, before we get into the real gritty stuff, let's just get to know you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what do you do f you know, for a living? You know, maybe a little bit about your faith story, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, awesome. Well. Thank you, Pastor Joe, for inviting me and all of you, Central City, both in person and also online as well. Um, there's a lot of ways I can start just a bit about myself. Um, I think the best way for me to describe who I am, how I came to faith, how I came, began to follow Jesus is what happened before I was born. Um, my grandparents on my mother's side were actually, um, became Christians in South Korea through the work of Presbyterian missionaries way back in the day. So I'm actually a third generation Korean American Presbyterian. Um, but my faith really didn't become real until college when I began to really wrestle with questions. Is this something I really wanna follow? Is this just something that's been passed down through my family? Um, faith became real to me in college. Um, since then, God's really led me on a really interesting, winding, and nonlinear path. Some of you might also r relate to this. Um, for a while, I had a sense that I wanted to go into pastoral ministry, so I actually went to seminary. Um, but through that experience, I actually um, kind of saw the, the dark side of the church um, as it relates to kind of spiritual abuse, racism. Um, so that kind of turned me off in terms of wanting to pursue pastoral ministry, but it did also show me something about like a calling for me to want to speak into these things. As someone who's experienced these things, who's seen it happen, who's seen things covered up, but wanting to bring light to those things, um, to change things, to see a better church in the future. Um, and then in terms of vocationally what I do, so full-time I'm actually a paralegal for a um, immigration law firm. So basically what I do is I actually help um, immigrants come to the United States uh, for work visas for various reasons to stay in the U.S. Um, with the long-term journey for some of them to stay, become um, green card holders and citizens of the United States. Um, I'm also the associate editor for Faithfully Magazine, which is a publication that's focused on issues that impact Christian communities of color. 
Um, I'm also um, the operations manager for a local nonprofit called uh, the Racial Justice and Unity Center, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later. Um, and besides that, I'm also um, a husband to my wonderful wife, Allison, our two kids. We have three cats as well, so our house is uh, always a busy place. Uh, so you, you do a lot. This, I do. Yeah. <laughs> this is like when I, if I was in it, yeah, we're, we're, we have a lot in common. Um, so you roast coffee. Yes. We're going we're gonna to start there. Um, tell, how'd you get into roasting coffee? And then we'll talk about some of your, so, your, your social justice bent around. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think some of you might relate to this as well. When you're kind of working in things that are really heavy, stressful kind of stuff, you really need a hobby to kind of like escape from that from time to time. So um, coffee roasting became actually just a hobby for me at first. So a couple of years back, a good friend of mine, uh, it's been a barista for a long time, really into third wave coffee, all the really fancy pour overs and all that stuff. So that rubbed off onto me. I really got into that world. And then I realized that um, roasting coffee is actually cheaper than buying coffee. So that's when I first started getting into it. You can actually buy like a pound of green coffee, roast it yourself with a converted uh, air popcorn popper for like less than $4 a pound, which is amazing. So it was a money saver at first. Uh, it was therapeutic for me to <laughs> roast coffee outside with all the smoke and everything. So that's how I first got into coffee roasting. Um, and then over the years, um, as I kind of honed my you know, abilities to roast and kind of shared it with some friends who were willing to be guinea pigs to try out different roasts of coffee, different experiments. Um, people encouraged me to like, hey, you might want to sell this. It actually might be something worthwhile. So um, just last year, last February, was when I officially started Mosaic Coffee um, as a business here locally. And um, yeah, so currently we have three different roasts of coffee. Um, the one that you're having right now is our Kenyan roast, the medium roast. And um, yeah, we sell to uh, individuals, um, to churches, to businesses, all, all over, um, with a main focus locally here in Columbus, um, and, but also the, we have some customers outside of the state too. So I was introduced to your coffee because I got an email about coffee with a, that supports racial justice work, and you know, that was something that we've been investing in and trying to learn and get become. So explain that connection with uh, the how, uh, selling coffee, but it's supporting racial justice work and diversity. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, when you think of coffee, social justice, you don't really see the connection between those two things. But um, you know, coffee did start out as a hobby for me, but um, with kind of the work that I've been doing in racial justice, I think one of the common things that I heard from especially uh, majority white churches was they didn't know what the next step was, right? They would take, um, they'd listen to the podcast, they'd read the books, they'd have the sermon series, they'd have the speaker come out, they'd have all these things, they'd learned about racism, they've learned about the impacts on our society, but they really don't know what the next step was, right? And so um, Mosaic became an intersection between a hobby of mine and also that offering that next intersection, that next step for, for churches. So um, Mosaic, uh, one of the things I like to say is that a coffee, the, the bag for our coffee is like a canvas, right? There's artwork on there. Same thing with any product you buy. There's art that's on there. Someone made that art. There was conscious decisions of why they chose a certain artist versus another artist. And um, it makes you ask questions like, why are these artists featured? Why are certain other artists of other demographics are, have not been featured in you know, various labels and branding? And so what Mosaic does specifically is we're committed to 
working with local um, uh, people of color who are artists and creatives um, so that everything from our branding to our labels, all the artwork is specifically working with local uh, BIPOC um, artists and creatives. And you know, the, the, the overall goal that I want to provide is having the coffee be a vessel that connects the consumer with the artists and their community. Because once that bag of coffee is you know, in their hands, um, on their kitchen counter, um, in their church, they start to ask questions. Who is this artist? Why, where do they come from? Why have their communities been affected? Why have people like them not been featured in artwork um, over the many years? Um, and really start to make changes between um, how the world is now and to make changes into the future. Uh, I also, um, with Mosaic, feature our, the artist branding as well in the, the label itself so that if someone sees that bag, they see both Mosaic and they also see the artist so they can get connected to them so they can hire them for their work and so on. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I want to be totally transparent here. I, I don't think Mosaic's going to change the world. <laughs> um, but what I do hope is that it inspires people to think outside the box, to think what are ways in which we can make small little changes that go against the grain of how things have always been. And how can we imagine ways to make businesses, to make art, to work together with communities that have been marginalized, to make, to really put, in a sense, our money where our mouth is, to really commit to doing things um, that are, it's gonna benefit everybody, especially those who've been looked over and who've been downtrodden by society. One of the things I hear you saying is, you know, when you've read the books, you've listened to the podcast, you've had the sermon series, what do you do next? And one of the things I, one, one of the things I hear you saying, and I've heard other places is, okay, support businesses that are owned, operated, and benefiting people of color. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in, in, in that notion, I've seen a variety of there's Columbus lists, you can Google this. There's a variety of lists that say, Here, here's places you can eat, you know, places you can shop, things like that. And so, um, so you do a lot of work around racial justice. You're part of a local community. You're in their leadership team, I think you mentioned earlier. Um, what, are we, what are you doing right now in your local church to address racial justice or engage in that work? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, our church is also a fairly small church that um, is located in Hilliard. And so if you are familiar with Hilliard, you can probably guess it's a predominantly white church as well. And um, one of the official capacities that I have there is I'm the lead of our racial justice team. And um, that's uh, working with a couple People in the congregation, um, I specifically like to mention that it, like, reiterate, it's not a diversity committee. We're not trying to diversify our congregation. We are trying to infuse um, justice into the DNA of our church. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, we want to be able to see how, where does scripture, where does um, theology, how does that talk about justice and interweave it into everything from our Sunday mornings, uh, worship services, to uh, community groups, small groups, Bible studies, to have it really not be just an elective thing that we hear maybe on MLK Day, right? But something that's really infused throughout um, the inner workings of our church. So that's what I do locally um, at, at, at New City Presbyterian Church. That's my home church. 
Um, and then broadly speaking, um, I'm also, um, yeah, I mentioned a couple of things that I do. Um, I really try to bring conversations around the intersection of faith and what we think about the way we live our lives, uh, especially as it relates to justice, um, race, racism, and so on. You know, something I really struggled with is what you kind of just said there, because when we started talking about racial justice, anti-racism work, there was a, an immense amount of assumptions of um, well-intentioned people where they assumed that meant promoting diversity. Mm. And, become, and so to engage in anti-racism work means that we'll become more diverse. And one of the things I, I'm still trying to learn is that there are diverse communities that aren't racially just mm. Mm. Um, because of the way power plays out. And then there are communities that aren't necessarily very diverse that are actually engaging in racial, you know, creating a, a sense of justice. And so this is like a real, um, it's a real struggle because the most tangible, visible sign of success is having a community where there's just lots of different people. And I, and I think everyone, I mean, I, I know like our community, we still kind of long for that. We want that. We want to be around a, a variety of diverse people. But um, the work of actually understanding how race plays out in America and how power plays out is is um, is almost it's the foundation that we need mm. kind of before we even do anything else. So, anyways, um, tell us about the Racial Justice and Unity Center. What's your involvement there? What's the work that you do? What you know, kind of what, what's your what's what's that look like? Yeah. So the Racial Justice and Unity Center, I'll, I'll call it RGUC for short. So that's the work uh, that my colleague Chad Brennan has been doing for uh, actually about 15 years, working mostly with Christian colleges, universities, uh, K through 12 schools, Christian organizations uh, around the topics of diversity, racial climate, um, providing assessments for these different schools, institutions to th think of ways for them to grow, especially as it relates to both diversity, inclusion, racial justice. And the, the RJUC came out as, um, in the past three years, through uh, a research project that we did actually with Barna and with the Lilly Endowment Fund, uh, working with uh, Michael Emerson, if you're familiar with the book Divided by Faith. Um, he's one of the authors of that book and another scholar in kind of the sociology of religion, um, Glenn Bracey. And so with this research project, we started asking questions kind of as a follow-up to the Divided by Faith. So asking questions of, have we actually progressed since when Dr. Emerson wrote that book many decades ago? And the sad reality was that we hadn't. Um, we may have diversified, but we hadn't really become more just. We hadn't become more equitable. Um, I think one of the really common findings was that there might have been churches that have broken the threshold of the 80-20, where 20% of their churches were people of color, but the leadership structures didn't change at all. Mm. So a lot of times, the people of color who were in those churches had, um, had to feel like they had to assimilate into a certain culture in order for them to stay or feel comfortable in there. And so uh, this research was really helpful. Uh, we had hundreds of um, racial justice, Christian racial justice advocates around the nation who worked together to help uh, with this research. And from there, we decided that something that Christian churches, organizations really needed was some way to assess exactly where they are in terms of their understanding, their actions towards racial justice, and how they can actually make change. Um, so 
right now, actually, you can go to rjuc.org, and we have this free assessment that you can take as an individual. Um, you can take it together as a group, and it asks you questions that are related to uh, identifying things that help in terms of racial justice, things that hinder, things that are, um, you know, underlying uh, things that might be very harmful to the work of racial justice, but are often seen as kind of helpful things. And one of the things that I'm specifically doing with this work of the RGUC is to create a network of coaches and consultants um, who are experts in the field of racial justice, who are willing to work with individuals and organizations so that once they take the assessment, they can walk through that assessment with them and, and work with them over a course of time to really make discipleship, real accountability and changes in all these different areas. Um, so I'm working with uh, various people from just all around the nation to be able to do this. I'm excited uh, about it mostly because I don't think anything like this exists out there. I, I think that there is a real potential uh, to um, use the gifts of many people who've been working in this space for far longer than I have, uh, who are willing to, and who've been wanting to see the infrastructure created so that we can actually help people to move along. Um, yeah, I'm just excited about that. So if, if you are interested in being a part of that at all, um, the two things that I would recommend for you to do is there's a book that just got published last year by my colleague Chad Brennan and Christina Edmondson called Faithful Anti-Racism. Uh, published by InterVarsity Press last year. That's a really great book if you can get your hands on it at the library or wherever. Um, that kind of just shows the the groundwork of just exactly what the RJUC is about. And then if you want to go to rguc.org and take that assessment, I think it's really um, a sobering but also a very helpful thing to really take that assessment and think and really see where you might be at. Um, I think we all, we're all on a journey, right? I mean, I'm, I'm on a journey myself and I think it's helpful for me it was uh, eye-opening for me to be able to take it myself to see where I was, where I needed to grow, and just to see we're on this journey together. Um, Divided by Faith, I read probably four years ago, um, and that was a real pivotal book for me. I, I referenced it in a sermon four years ago, so I'm sure you, you all remember if you were here. But um, uh, yeah, that was a fantastic. So Faithfully Anti-Racist? Faithful Anti-Racism. Faithful Anti-Racism, mm -hmm. and then there's this assessment, rjuc.org. Mm -hmm. So we'll make those leaks available. I'm gonna take the assessment, so you should too, and if you want a copy of that book, if you're interested in it, I'll, I'll get you a copy myself if you wanna own one, so uh, let me know. Um, so in a lot of our work, we've had Robert Caldwell come, you guys might remember, we've uh, did his series on racism, race in the church, and breakout groups, and we've we've had sermons. A lot of it has focused on the African-American experience in America, and rightly so. Could you share a little bit about racism in America from an Asian-American perspective? Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, you know, I, I, I prepared my answer to this question, um, hoping that I'd be, you know, today's Lunar uh, New Year, and um, I was able, to, I was hoping to be able to talk about this in kind of a celebratory and sort of abstract sort of way. Um, but this morning I woke up to, and you guys have probably also woke up to the news of uh, a mass shooting in California in a predominantly Asian American um, city. We don't know the motives yet, but what's the matter, what happened was it came during a Lunar New Year celebration. And so this isn't 
abstract for me, right? Mm. This is very just kind of down to earth. Um, these could have been my brothers, could have been my parents, could have been my friends, and so on. Um, with that being said, um, in terms of the Asian American experience, so the way that I try to explain it to people is it's similar to when you've, have you ever tried listening to a different genre of music before? Mm-hmm. Where you, let's something that's totally out of left field, right, that you've never listened to before, you try to listen to it, it just seems so different to you, kind of bizarre. What seems normal doesn't seem normal anymore. What is consistent considered normal for that genre sounds totally dissonant to you. And it takes you a while for you to realize, okay, that's actually a normal thing for you to hear. This is part of the genre. This is what, for hip hop, this is what sampling sounds like. You, you, you figure out these are the normal things in this genre of music. And I think um, in the United States, um, because um, the black, white racial tension, racism is very much on our minds and as it should be, I think we've been become very accustomed to the genre of racism that happens to, and it has happened to African-Americans, but we aren't ready to move to a different genre of recognizing the racism that might happen to the Asian-American community, uh, the Latino community, Native Americans, and so on. And so I think there's a lot of growth that we need to do to be able to understand the different genre of racism. Racism is not static. Racism changes over generations. It's kind of like the, um, the Halloween costume that always changes every single year, right? It, it's always changing and morphing with different communities. For the Asian American community, I think there are three overall um, highlights or markers of Asian, anti-Asian racism that I think we should all be familiar with. Um, the three of them are uh, yellow Peril, uh, Perpetual Foreigners, and uh, the third one is, um, I'll get back to it and I'll remember it. <laughs> the, so the first one, uh, so Yellow Peril. So this is kind of the idea that um, people of Asian descent are a threat to the way things have always been in American society, which is often coded for white American society, right? So there have been policies, there have been structures, things that have been made in our country that have specifically kept out people of Asian descent from our country. Everything from the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is the first race-based immigration law preventing people from coming into this country, um, targeting Asian or Chinese uh, people of Chinese descent, um, even everything connected to the present, where COVID-19, people targeting Asian Americans, even Asian citizens, right, Asian American citizens, as being somewhat more likely to have the virus, to be from unhygienic communities, whatever it might be, that they are some sort of a threat to the way things should be in the U.S. Um, the second one is uh, the, the perpetual foreigner um, kind of mentality. And this is uh, both subtle and obvious ways in which Asian Americans have felt that they only are provisionally accepted in American society. And what I mean by that is there are ways in which we're welcomed, but also kept at a, um, an arm's distance. So one of the things that I like to tell people, it's uh, an experience that I've had. Um, I used to preach at various churches, um, mostly majority white churches, and to a T, almost every single time I preached, 
after I preached, some well-intentioned white congregant would come to me and tell me how great my English was. Assuming that I was not born in this country, assuming lots of things about me, um, I've also you know, heard uh, people in casual conversation coming to me, first time they meet me, ask me where I'm really from when I'm you know, born and raised in Santa Barbara, California. And so there's just a lot of these little subtle things where people have assumed that Asian Americans don't really belong here. We're only just provisionally here, right? Mm. And those are very subtle ways that we have felt excluded. And that connects very much to that yellow peril thing, right? If you kind of have a provisional acceptance into society, if you become a target for COVID-19, whatever it might be, you become the outsider, you become the other. The third thing, I did remember it. So the model minority myth. So that I think that's really um, a popular one. And you know, some of you might be wondering, like, what's the problem with the model minority myth, right? What's the problem with a stereotype that Asians are hardworking, get A's in all their classes, right? What's, what's the problem with that? The problem is that it's not true. And the problem is that it glosses over the whole spectrum of the Asian American experience. Um, Asian Americans, I mean, it's a vast population of people. You have extreme poverty in our group of people. You have people who have fled their countries to come to here, um, who've lost everything. And so you have people who are from certain countries who are Asian American in this broad group of Asian Americans who are not doing well here. And when you tell them Asian Americans are all smart, they're all brilliant, they all get great jobs, so on and so forth, what happens is you end up saying, well, those Asians who are not doing well, they're just not working hard enough, right? They don't care about their families enough. That's why they're not doing as well as their other Asian counterparts. And I think that's really one of the things where it's very harmful when you use that stereotype because it really glosses over the problems. I think mental health is also an issue um, where because the idea that Asians are successful, that must mean they're all happy, right? And so mental health is not considered a serious mm. thing for Asian Americans because they think, well, that person must be just a fluke. <laughs> and they're not, they're not, you know, they're not successful like everyone else. The other reason why the model minority myth is, an, is a problem is because historically it's been used as um, a cover, a, an excuse for white supremacy and racism, where um, people in power um, used the model minority myth to place a wedge between the black community and the white community to say, look at these Asian people. They're doing so well in our country. Why can't you black people be as good as them? Hmm. Why can't you brown people be as good as them? And that is a continual thing. You'll, you'll hear this, you can listen to local news media, podcasts, all kinds of stuff. That statistic or those kind of um, talking points are said again and again, where it, they're, they're telling people the reason why the black community, the brown communities are not doing well is because they're not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps just like the Asian community. And I, you know that's, that's a harmful thing. One of the most dangerous things about that too is that when it, something is said to someone so often, it becomes internalized as well. So Asian Americans ha can have a tendency to internalize that narrative, to think the reason why I'm successful, the reason why my parents are successful is because we worked hard, um, because we're, we're smart. And they begin to internalize that and use that also against racial justice, also against black and brown people and their communities thinking 
we did it ourselves. Why aren't you guys working as hard as we are? So the, the phrase there you're using is model minority myth. That's right. And it's the idea that there's a minority group, Asian, American, that's sort of the model of what it looks like to be. And so then you're lifted up and sort of like smart. Yep. One of the things I hear you saying is that, um, uh, and I think it's something that you know we need to remind ourselves, is that stereotypes are damaging even if they're good ones. You're like, well, stereotypically, you're smart. Well, that's not, a, that's not helpful in all the ways that you describe. Like stereotypes, even if you're like, well, that's a nice stereotype. What's the problem? Well, no, 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 stereotypes. <clears throat> And these types of assumptions are the problem, whether they make someone look good or bad. Um, and we kind of have to deconstruct those things. Right. So let's talk a little bit about how this intersects with your faith, hmm. theology. Is there, um, where do you see God in this? Where, are there scripture passages that you sort of anchor to? Where does this connect with your, your faith? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think my thoughts about this in terms of how my faith impacts it, how scripture impacts it, has evolved over time. So much earlier on, many years ago, I think the passages of scripture that really resonated with me were passages about unity, about diversity. You know, um, Jesus' prayer in John 17 about unity, Ephesians 2 about Jesus breaking the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Those are still really great passages. I'm not saying that those are bad. What I'm saying, the ways that it's evolved for me is that I began to realize that diversity for the sake of diversity is not helpful, and nor is it what Jesus wants us to do. Diversity must be preceded by justice. If you don't precede diversity with justice, you will end up with assimilation. You'll end up with hurting people. You'll end up with people who are pushed out. Um, so the passages now that really speak to me are the plethora of passages in the Old Testament about God being a God of justice, a God of justice for the oppressed. Um, Jesus' words in Matthew 25 are especially pertinent of when he's separating the goat and the sheep, he's telling us the people who are his are the ones who fed the hungry, who visited the prisoner, who clothed the naked, who cared for the orphan, the prisoner, um, the the stranger. And, you know, of course, he's not saying that you earn your place as uh, a child of God by doing these things. But what he is saying, though, is real faith looks like an acts in these ways. Like, there's no way we can divide that. We can't just say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, but I'm not going to do these things, or I choose not to do these things. They're not optional. These are really important works of justice that God has called us to do. And that really, I think, connects to the work of racial justice. Um, so it's beyond, you know, just diversifying our numbers, but it's really thinking, how do we make an equitable place where people are all together able to hold positions of power are all able to submit to one another rather than just one group submitting to another group all the time and to really flourish in this community together. Yeah, that, that shift that you mentioned that I, that I was trying to reference earlier is, is such a, I think, a significant shift generationally even. And I think it was a Divided by Faith that talks about this, where, where like the focus really was on unity. Hmm. And realizing that unity, diversity for the sake of diversity, produced not always positive results. And you probably know the, I believe that's partly what the elusive dream is about by um, a professor at OSU and her name's 
Yeah, um, uh, Corey, Corey Edwards. Yeah, um, and there's a podcast. I think that part of, I haven't read the book, but I've read parts of it. Um, but this shift where it's like, we can't just pursue diversity without understanding justice, which means you can't pursue diversity without understanding how power plays out. And having a diverse church with an all white male leadership team is not, you know, is not what Jesus had in mind. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's this bigger conversation around equity. Last question, um, because we've, uh, we've run out of time, but uh, so you, you're part of a majority white community. You've spoken and worked with a variety of majority white communities. When you think, uh, consider majority white community uh, church, what's one thing you wish that they understood about racism and or diversity in America? Yeah, I'm gonna cheat and give you two things. All right. <laughs> um, the first thing is colorblindness is no friend to racial justice. And the reason why I say that is because it's very common in majority white spaces to hear people say, I'm on the side of you know, um, minorities, I ignore race, I don't see race, right? Um, and that's not helpful because the Bible, when the Bible talks about the work of justice, it calls us to two things. It calls us to one, avoid negative prejudice of people based upon their backgrounds but it also tells us to positively give a special justice for those who have been oppressed. We can't do that if we blind ourselves mm. to our differences, right? Mm. We are, we're impairing our ability to really do the biblical command of justice if we're not gonna see race, if we're not gonna see the differences, if we're not gonna see the family stories of ways people have been marginalized. Um, We will not be able to do what we've been called to do. So that's the first thing, colorblindness. The second thing we've already touched on already, power dynamics. You can't do the work of racial justice without addressing power dynamics. Um, you know, the, the, the diversity kind of movement to be able to say, oh, we have X amount of people who are this race or this race in our church. What ends up happening is, uh, I mentioned already, people, the, you end up having a still monocultural church that people have to conform and contort themselves into to feel like they belong in. You also have the issue of tokenism, um, the idea that, you know, sure, we'll hire a Asian American, we'll hire a black um, associate pastor or an elder, whatever it might be, but oftentimes those are the safe people that are hired that no one's gonna make a fuss about. <laughs> and often that ends up hurting the movement because they're trying to play it safe, right? Um, there's also money. <laughs> uh, we, money. Talking about money in church is always really... All the money. Yeah. But really, though, um, we, the way that society has been, you know, the way that wealth has been passed on in our country, yeah. um, white Americans in churches, white, if, uh, yeah, white Americans in churches still have control over most of the money. And they are also the bigger givers. Mm-hmm. And often there might be strings attached to that. So when a pastor, when a church decides, we want to talk about these things, we want to actually make actions about these things, don't be surprised if there's someone who stands up and says, I don't want to talk about this, I'm going to leave, and there goes 50% of the church's budget with me. <laughs> right? That's sure. a lot of that going on as well. So those are the two things. Colorblindness is no friend to racial justice, and power, you have to address power dynamics to work with, with uh, racial justice. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else uh, that you didn't say that you were hoping to? Yeah. Um, so the last thing that I want to say is 
um, that I, I, I like to tell this, especially to majority white churches, is that racism, it, racism kills white people too. Hmm. What I mean by that is race, whiteness, this idea that all people who look a certain way, who are not black, who are not brown, who are not Asian, who are white, has killed cultures, has killed our back, your backgrounds. You know, you, I talk to a lot of white people who say, oh, I'm a mutt, I'm from blah, 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 but they don't know any connection to any of the places where they're actually from. Whiteness has done something to damage their connections to their family histories, to who they are as a people. That's done some real damage. <laughs> um, so racism is not just a, a, you know, a woke white person thing to address, right? That you're kind of coming in as a savior, swooping down on these poor black and brown communities to fix them. It's the thing that we're all in together. Racism is something that kills white communities as well. It has killed white communities. The suburbs, um, the suburbs are a product of people um, blocking themselves out from the city in order that they can live a really posh white picket fence life away from people who are different from them. And I think that's really, caused generational problems that's caused a lot of people not having empathy with people who are different from them. Um, I, I think that that's something that we need to think about is we're in this work together. It's not a some people coming in to fix everything, but we're all in this work and the struggle together. I'm so glad you said that. That's something that we've uh, heard in places if you've been with us for a while. And, it, and it's such a hard thing, I think, as a white person to come to terms with this idea that racism hurts us. And it, obviously there's different genres and it, and it hurts in a different way, but it's not, we're n it's not like, yeah, this white savior mentality is part of the problem. And um, it's pervasive, I've found in my experience with church, but um, it's not about just helping people who are oppressed, but the oppressor um, or people who belong to majority culture um, need to do this work for their own benefit. And uh, I've, I've not heard that illustration in regards to killing our heritage, but you're absolutely right. Being white was enough so that, I, you know, I'm not as familiar with, like, you know, what cultural heritage I have and where I think I go back to Great Britain, which is whatever. But anyways, fascinating. <laughs> Aren't you so glad we had this conversation? I just think it was so good, and I really appreciate your time. Will you guys thank him for uh, coming to be here? The band wants to come up. We'll make sure that we uh, share um, in an email or on our website the, uh, the links from, that he referenced in the conversation. That way, if any of you want to follow up with those things, we can, um, we can do it. So this, this is our last conversation in this series of Voices for Justice. I'm currently starting to um, map out the next one, which will be sometime in the summer. We'll bring in a couple of speakers, um, either over you know, once a month, or we might do it all back to back. If there's a conversation that you'd really love to have, or somebody you think would be great to interview, um, or a topic that you'd love for us to spend some time with, that's what this series is for. It's just kind of a, an opportunity every once in a while for our church to talk about relevant things like this. So let me know if you have ideas, don't throw them out. Um, we're, we're starting to plan out the next one for the summer. So with that, uh, you can stand and join us for a closing song.